On the 1st of September 1939, 25-year-old Malvern resident Orna Lloyd started writing her diary of the war. This is episode 6. It is May 1940. Friday, May 10th, 1940. Holland, Belgium and Luxembourg have been invaded as they were bound to be lying straight in the path of a thrust towards Britain. The mind boggles at what must be going on. A hundred enemy planes were brought down in one day, but there seemed to be no end to them. We went to Bristol to stay with Auntie Eve and Uncle Arnold. The government has fallen. Churchill is PM and a coalition of all parties set up. God send it may not be too late for them to do anything. This is the BBC Home Service. Here is a short news bulletin. The German army invaded Holland and Belgium early this morning by land and by landings from parachutes. The armies of the Low Countries are resisting. An appeal for help has been made to the Allied governments and Brussels says that Allied troops are moving to their support. It is learnt in London that the necessary measures for giving assistance were put into effect at once. The Germans claim to have mined all Dutch and Belgian ports. An air attack has been made on a French aerodrome. The British War Cabinet met at 8am. All civil defence organisations in this country are warned to be on the alert. This is how the news of the invasion was received here this morning. Saturday, May 11th, 1940. The news from the Low Countries is bad. Betrayal from inside and unpreparedness seems to be doing their deadly work everywhere. Now at the age of 65, Winston Churchill, plump, bald, with massive round shoulders, is for the first time in his varied career of journalist, historian and politician, the Prime Minister of Great Britain. The historians will have to devote more than a footnote to this remarkable man, no matter what happens. Sunday, May 12th to Tuesday, May 14th, 1940. News of any real value is scanty. We seem to be shooting down a good number of the enemy aircraft, but they have such thousands it does not seem to be making much impression. And parachutists, who were so much poo-pooed, seem to be having considerable success. On Monday afternoon we went to Sand Bay for a picnic, and last night we took our supper to Aust and cooked sausages over a lovely fire. The country we all love is almost agonisingly beautiful at this time of year, and the threat to it, and its hundreds of years of peace and plenty, almost impossible to realise. I felt as though we were fiddling while Rome burnt. One's utter powerlessness to do anything, even when we are on the edge of the abyss, not daring to look into it, would be awful if it was remotely possible to believe in its reality. Wednesday, May 15th, 1940. In the face of the most awful suffering and every device of evil known to the bestial Hun, Holland has been obliged to surrender all but the province of Zeeland, at the mouth of the Scheldt. The handwriting on the wall is plain enough for even the biggest fools to read. If we can live through the hell of this summer that is coming, we can overthrow Hitler and stamp out this frightful evil which has attacked the world. If not, and the British and French empires fall, the last bastions of European civilization, 
there will be a dark age like the thousand years after the fall of Rome, from which, if humanity emerges at all, it will be the turn of Asia or the coloured races. The hope of mankind has dwindled to only the smallest glimmer, only the conviction that if we fall, in God's time, something will succeed us and perhaps learn from our mistakes, as we learned from Rome, Greece, Babylon and China. In the meantime, I hope most of us may be strong enough to fight for what good European civilization has managed to do. The real civilization of music, art, poetry, and all learning that has aimed at the betterment and not the destruction of mankind against the barbarous hordes that are bent on its destruction. If Germany repeats this hideous invasion in Britain, and we are obliged to the same course as the Dutch, which I think can never be knowing how Germany will be revenged upon us. I shall bury this diary so deep that one day, in a saner world, someone may find it and know that the last legions of civilization meant not domination, but good, even though their hands were feeble and their foresight all too dim. To be writing such words and thinking such thoughts seems like insanity, but these times are not sane, and reason is dead. Daily Mirror, 15th May 1940. Dutch give in. BEF fight on in Holland. Holland's army surrendered last night to the Germans. Fighting goes on in the Zeeland province, the coastal area bordering Belgium and guarding the approach to Antwerp. The troops still fighting in Zeeland, according to a Room radio message, are British but the Dutch Navy will fight on with the Allies. Official news of the surrender was issued by the Netherlands legation in London early today in a message which said, The Commander-in-Chief of the Netherlands Army has issued a proclamation to the troops that fighting is to cease. His decision was taken towards the end of the afternoon of May 14th. Enemy troops, in great numbers, have succeeded in crossing the Moordyke bridges and in retaking Rotterdam, which had previously been heavily bombarded. Consequently, the heart of the country was laid open to the enemy and the main forces of the army behind the Dutch waterline were threatened by immediate enemy attacks on their rear. In these circumstances, and in order to avoid complete destruction of the country, the commander-in-chief was of the opinion that further resistance had become useless and therefore was to be abandoned. Thursday, May 23rd, 1940. Events have moved too quickly for me to record them. The utterly incredible has happened. The invincible Maginot Line has been breached and the Germans are pouring into northern France. Out of this hideous melee, by the grace of God, Father returned after incredible adventures in the fortnight of his active service in France. He was exhausted and hardly seemed to know what had happened to him. Thursday, May 28th, 1940. More terrible news. The German attack has been pressed with frightful violence and brutality, and in the face of it, the Belgian army, under the express command of King Leopold, has capitulated, leaving our flank almost hopelessly exposed. In such circumstances, there will be nothing for it but withdrawal of what forces we can contrive to rescue from the net. Comment is useless and recrimination utterly vain, but God help us all. Daily Record, 29th May 1940. Leopold may be in Italy. 
King Leopold, it was believed in London last night, has gone to Italy to join his children who were already there. There is no harm now in revealing, says a Times message from Paris, that at the outset of the German invasion, King Leopold stubbornly refused to accept the Allied Supreme Command, saying that he intended to defend his country in his own fashion. Only after a virtual French ultimatum to leave him to his fate did he yield. It is now clear, says the Times correspondent, what his fashion of defence would have been. Violent threats against the Belgian government for its decision to fight on were made over the German wireless last night. This group of émigrés has not the slightest justification for speaking in the name of the Belgian people, said the speaker. Just punishment will be meted out to them sooner than they think. He then went on to threaten the French people with a fate similar to that which befell the citizens of Warsaw and Bromberg. Mr. Churchill also will meet his hour of punishment, the speaker concluded. Monday, June 3, 1940 The great deliverance, the incredible feat of arms which no one dared to hope possible, is nearly over. And, with the help of God, four-fifths of our army, which seemed doomed, has been brought off, and more are still being rescued. The Germans have expended enormous amounts of war materials, planes and men to annihilate the BEF, and failed. A mood of tranquillity and optimism, which came over me this afternoon, gave place all too soon to weariness and war fret. One lives a lifetime of opposite moods in a day, but what tears at one's nerves is the endless continuity of it. More and more killing, day after day. There are times when I feel endlessly old and worn out, and others when I feel hopelessly young and completely unable to combat life or to hope for any future. I know, somehow, despite the frantic entry of May 15th, that we shall win in the end, but my spirit quails at the task of building up again what has been broken down. It took 22 years to arrive even in this country at anything like normality after the last war, when things have settled down again, I shall be old. A thousand bombs have been dropped on Paris. The motive was pure spite, for the planes were so high that they could not possibly see whether they were bombing military objectives or not. I seem to have said fairly frequently in the course of this diary that comment is useless. It is useless, really. One finds oneself recording huge disasters, in almost timetable terms, as though nothing mattered, simply because there are really no words that can adequately express one's feelings. One's mind will not grasp the idea of Paris. Paris! One of the loveliest cities in the whole world being bombed. Nor can one imagine any human creature that could contemplate such an act. Monday, 3rd June, 1940. Now here is the news. The situation at Dunkirk is unchanged. Bombs were dropped on Paris this afternoon. Cotton industry holidays have been postponed to August. The price of bread is unchanged. The situation at Dunkirk is unchanged. More British and French troops are being evacuated, while the Allied rearguard continues to withstand enemy pressure on land and from the air. The French military spokesman said this morning that the Germans seem to have given up the idea of trying to force Dunkirk's defences and its flooded region and are relying on aerial and long-range artillery bombardment to hinder embarkation.
The Allied air and naval forces continue to make effective retaliation. The Germans have lost many motor torpedo boats, besides their huge losses in the air. Meanwhile, there has been intense air reconnaissance over the whole of the rest of the front. The French spokesman said that important troop movements are taking place in the enemy back areas, and Allied aircraft are trying to spot, on the roads and even in the fields, the movement of German columns, particularly the huge transport columns which would have to be brought up before the launching of a fresh offensive. Tuesday, June 11th, 1940. Yesterday, Italy declared war on Britain and France. So the end of fascism there is not to be natural, but unnatural and violent like the crimes it has committed. So be it. Those that have preached the corruption of mankind must perish in the corruption of mankind. I think no one hates the Italians, only remembers with limitless scorn that this is the nation who used tanks and poison gas against unarmed Abyssinians, who in deliberate mockery of the holiest day in the civilised year, shelled Durazzo on Good Friday, who bombed and machine-gunned refugee columns in a miserable land where they had fermented rebellion. As ye sow, so shall ye reap. They are ringing their bells now, but soon they will be wringing their hands. The bombing of undefended villages, which Vittorio Mussolini declared to be such sport, will look very different when it is Tuscan and Romanian houses that are falling, and Italians who are dying instead of niggers and Albanians. When I remember that the conscience of most men of goodwill never condone the outrages of fascism, I still, even with Paris almost in the jaws of barbarism and half of Europe under its heel, believe in the spirit of man, and above all, I believe in the terrible judgments of God. Leicester Evening Mail, 11th June 1940. Paris, fog of smoke. Dawn broke, grey and menacing, in Paris today. The whole city was enveloped in a pall of smoke, enemy incendiary bombs having caused fires in districts around the capital. It was impossible to see clearly from bridge to bridge along the Seine or across the Place de la Concorde. Refugees were straggling towards the station, mostly on foot. Many were pushing perambulators and small carts containing all the belongings they could take with them. The Paris newspapers appeared this morning for the last time. They carried Mussolini's declaration of war on Britain and France. At two in the morning the presses ceased, but arrangements are being made to publish a single broadsheet. The British embassy has left the capital. The United States embassy is one of the few remaining. Friday, June 14th, 1940. Paris has fallen. Monsieur Renault's desperate appeal to America has received no answer, except that Roosevelt says it has not reached him officially. Sunk in sloth and folly and unpreparedness as we were before the September crisis, there was no help they could give. What is to be done must be done by our own efforts. I think I shall remember this day as long as memory holds its seat in this distracted globe. The sense of tragedy enacted and impending is utter and almost overwhelming. I shall never forget the BBC's courageous and inspiring music of Sibelius' First Symphony and the whole of César Franck's D minor. These the enemy can never take away. 
but I feel as if something inside me is dying. Oh, Paris. Paris. It is only five weeks since the invasion of Belgium. Friday, 14th June 1940, 8 a.m., 8 o'clock, and here is the morning news bulletin, which will have been heard already by listeners who tuned in an hour ago. The battle for Paris has increased in violence. German armoured divisions have crossed the Seine south of Rouen. Monsieur Renault has broadcast on the gravity of the situation and has appealed to President Roosevelt. Britain has sent a message to France, assuring her that we shall continue to give her the utmost aid and renewing our pledge to continue the struggle at all costs. There are details of the RAF's powerful intervention in the battle in France. Tuesday, June 25th, 1940. We had our first air raid, which really passed off as a huge joke for Mother and I had several small casualties before we got into the cellar both times. On the first adventure, Mother left her dear teeth upstairs. We both left our gas masks in the hall, and Mother had my coat on. The second time I got my slacks on backwards way first, but neither time was there any AA fire, or the least reason to be nervous. Wednesday, July 2nd, 1940. Night raids repeatedly on Britain, but the threatened invasion has not yet taken shape. Auntie Gertie, Uncle Alfred and Beryl came to stay with us indefinitely because of the strain of repeated warnings over the Bristol Channel. There are signs, as yet only vague, that fascism and communism may clash over the oil wells and grain stocks in Romania. Is it wrong to pray that they may? Tuesday, 2nd July, 1940, 1pm. Here is a news bulletin. It has been officially announced that little material damage was done in the raid which enemy aircraft made on the Bristol Channel area last night. Four people were slightly injured. An earlier official statement issued during the early hours of the morning had given the news that a series of enemy aircraft crossed the southwest coast shortly before midnight and the bombs had been dropped in the Bristol Channel area. German raiders also flew over other parts of Britain last night and early this morning. In the northeast and the southwest of England and in Wales, enemy machines were heard and ground defences and our fighter aircraft were in action. Agency messages say that bombs fell on several districts in Wales, but in only one district was any damage caused. This was to bungalows and a couple of houses. One woman was slightly wounded and several people were treated for cuts from flying glass. Householders in their Anderson shelters escaped unhurt. The air raid on a town in the northeast of Scotland, which was carried out before dark yesterday evening, has also been the subject of an official statement. This says that 12 people were killed and 18 injured. Amongst those killed were four children who were playing in the street. Monday, July 8th, 1940. Lieutenant Norton was billeted on us transport officer of the Queen's own Royal West Kent Regiment. Territorial. Thursday, July 18th, 1940. I hardly know why I have not written this diary up for the last three weeks. Certainly it is not that I have forgotten it, or been gravelled for lack of matter. Perhaps the most awe-inspiring event of the whole war was the Cabinet's decision to put the French Navy out of action to prevent it being used against us. I can think of no parallel action. So tragic, 
unless it was Drake's decision to hang his friend Thomas Doughty for mutiny during their voyage round the world. There is a parallel in those stark times and these, and a resurgence of the uncompromising virtues and vices of an age that had to tackle realities which once more we have to face. We wait. Voices across the channel threaten and bluster with ever-increasing violence and bombast. And we wait. I think my countrymen are the strangest souls alive. I suppose the Germans regard the war as practically over, in their favour, but my Englishmen still regard it as a game which, in the long run, they will undoubtedly win. And they will, because they'll never entertain the possibility of their being beaten. And so, we wait. Ormskirk Advertiser, 18th July 1940. Fight to all extremities. In his broadcast, which was relayed to the United States, Mr. Churchill said, During the last fortnight, the British Navy, in addition to blockading what was left of the German fleet, and chasing the Italian fleet, has had imposed on it the sad duty of putting effectually out of action for the duration of the war the capital ships of the French Navy. These, under the armistice terms signed in the railway coach at Compiègne, would have been placed within the power of Nazi Germany. The transference of these ships to Hitler would have endangered the security both of Great Britain and of the United States. We therefore had no choice but to act as we did and to act forthwith. Our painful task is now completed. Tuesday, July 23rd, 1940. Mummy is ill in bed with a very worrying internal trouble. I hope it will not be very bad. Saturday, July 27th, 1940. Mr. Norton left. We were quite sorry, as we had got quite used to having him about the place. Mummy is still ill. We have to go to Birmingham to see a specialist. Hitler still drags on his futile war of nerves. I wonder if anyone pays any attention to him now. They lost 28 planes yesterday. There was a peace offensive last week or so, but I hardly remember what it was all about. Lord Halifax made a fine speech in reply. I wish Mummy looked better. I feel very concerned about her. Wednesday, July 31st, 1940. We caught a toad this evening. Such a jolly little fellow, who was great faking at being captured by human beings. He put his funny parodies of hands over his eyes, with the fingers spread out to protect himself from us. It was that rather heartbreaking and, from our point of view, quite futile gesture that made me ponder the problem of cruelty and mercy. Personally, I find the instruction to kill or inflict pain utterly incomprehensible. I cannot see into or have any part in a mind that cannot be touched and softened by a weak, confiding little gesture like that of the toad, whether it is in man or beast. I will never, by word or deed, pretend an admiration for those who abuse their strength to hurt the weak. I prefer Shakespeare's almost divine sympathy that even entered into the feeling of a snail, whose tender horns being hit shrinks backwards in his shelly cave with pain, and there all smothered up in shade doth sit, long fearing to peep forth again. 
he was a nice toad. 240 enemy planes have been brought down this month by our ground defences and the RAF. Saturday, August 3rd, 1940. Eleven months of war. I do not like this lull, and I shall be glad when tomorrow is safely over with Hitler's crazed imagination and the already melodramatic performance in the forest of Compiègne. I can think of no day that would so appeal to him as suitable for an attack as August 4th, the anniversary of our declaration of war in 1914. There have been other funny little indications that I do not like the look of. The PM's declaration from Number 10 this evening, Duff Cooper speaking after the news, Noel Coward in America reported in the papers as having said Hitler may attack this weekend, which makes one think that it may have been a current topic in America, but just not reported here. The failure of Mrs Wise's passports to turn up as promised. Odd behaviour noted in the ineffable Hun. He dropped leaflets of Hitler's speech. I may be starting at shadows. I sincerely hope I am. Time will show, and I hope I will not be afraid. If this game-giving is true, well... God be with us, for we stand in the last ditch. Yorkshire Post, 3rd August 1940. Mr Noel Coward makes a request. Mr Noel Coward, asked by newspaper men in Washington today if he expected an invasion of Britain to be attempted soon, said, The moon is right and the tide is right. Maybe he'll have a slap at it this weekend. If he does, the people will be expecting him. In fact, quite a reception has been prepared. Sunday, August 4th, 1940. It was a damp squib. Thank you for listening to this episode of Lorna Lloyd's Diary of the War. Lorna Lloyd is played by Bethany Ray and the newsreader by Richard Godden. Catherine Stephen is the announcer. The War Diary was written by Lorna Lloyd. Additional radio news broadcast material was supplied by the BBC Archive, copyright BBC. Print news was sourced from the British Newspaper Archive, with thanks to the British Library and Find My Past, and from back issues of the Malvern Gazette, held at Malvern Library. The theme tune is an extract from César Franck's Symphony in D minor, performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Richard Hickox on the 5th of September 2003, and also kindly made available by the BBC Archive. This podcast episode was brought to you by staff and students of the School of Computing at Edinburgh Napier University. It was produced by third-year students Alex Genks, David Graham, James McLaughlin, Andrash Peter and Michael Sutty, under the supervision of Ian McGregor. The podcast was directed by Bruce Ryan, with the assistance of Hazel Hall. The UK Arts and Humanities Research Council funded this work through the Creative Informatics Programme. Find out more about Lorna Lloyd and wartime in Malvern at www.malvernmuseum.co.uk and in the next episode of The Diary of the War.